Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. The goal of this show is to bring cyclists from all over the world together to share stories and make connections. This time, we hear about the bicycle race that saved a town, the Leadville 100. We then look at ghost bikes, the memorials set up on the side of the road, and what they mean by looking at one story in particular. We then talk about commuting all year round, and how many signs do you need to tell you not to go cycling on a certain day of the year. You have a lot of bicycle podcasts that you can listen to, and I really appreciate you coming along for the ride on mine. Let's roll out. So now we're going to hear from Ryan Johnson of Galaxy Gearworks, who's going to share a story about the bicycle race that saved a town. And he also raced it as well, a couple times, once on a tandem. And if that didn't pique your interest, you win a belt buckle. A belt buckle, if you complete this race in a certain amount of time. When you finish, the feeling to finish that event is pretty incredible once you've got it behind you. And if you rode fast enough to get a belt buckle, which is the goal, then it makes it worth it. And you really feel like you did something special and you can go home and put that belt buckle on uh, on your shelf and occasionally look back at it and remember how bad you suffered to, to earn it. Hi, I'm Ryan Johnson from Galaxy Gearworks, building custom bikes up here in Norwich, Vermont and looking forward to telling you guys my story. Um, Leadville is an incredible event because of the history of it. You know, it, it got started in this gritty mining town, the one of the highest incorporated towns in America that was in a full-scale depression. The town was basically almost turned into a ghost town. People were moving out of there. There was no money for, you know, the various things that a town needs, and people were kind of left sort of shaken as the mining industry started to collapse a little bit and this guy named Ken Clauber decided to create a cycling event and a running event to bring people to the area. Okay, so yeah, the Leadville 100 is a mountain bike race. It starts and finishes in Leadville, Colorado. Leadville, Colorado is a backwoods town in the middle of central Colorado close to the Collegiate Peaks, the Sawatch Range there. It's a gorgeous place, but Leadville itself is a little bit of a gritty place. It was a mining town, and it grew up with, I think, lead and silver mining in the area, other heavy metals, and it was a boom town for a long, long, long time. Somewhere in you know the recent decades, as the mining industry sort of collapsed and started to fade away, all the money stopped flowing in and out of Leadville because of that. And the local residents who didn't give up on the town were racking their brains trying to think of, hey, what can we do to bring people here? Some of these other towns, Breckenridge has got the ski industry, Salida's got whitewater right there, but Leadville, what have we got? And there was a guy, one guy in particular named Ken Clauber who decided, hey, we have these gorgeous mountains, we've got these old mining roads, and, and we've got toughness. We've got we got this grit about us, you know. We're hardworking people, and I think we could attract the same kind of hardworking people. And I'm talking mountain bike riders. We could create an event that would attract people from all over Colorado, but maybe even we ought to think about trying to reach people out all the way across the country and create an event that is so hard that it breaks a lot of people. But they'll go home and they'll tell all their friends about it, and they'll make it a goal for the next year which is exactly what Ken and those guys created. So I think they're on their 25th year in 2019, and it'll be their 25-year celebration. 
it started out pretty small, but then quickly grew as the reputation spread across the country, how tough this event is. Well, it's a hundred mile event, so it's super hard just by the nature of the distance, but you factor in the fact that you start above 10,000 feet and drop down a little bit to get out of town, but you know, you climb to 12,500 feet and the, the climbs are brutal. The course is really tough because of the altitude, but also because of the level of climbing. It's a hard day. This is a big deal race. I mean, Lance Armstrong, whether you like him or not, he, back during the day, he would do like the Tour de France, he'd do all the road races, but this was one of the most prominent mountain bike races that he would do. Yeah, a good number of notable road pros have done that event. And they sort of, you know, Lance and Floyd and, and Levi Leifheimer, those guys kind of upset the apple cart with regards to the, the record speed for the event and the dominance of some of the more traditional mountain bike guys who targeted that event every year. At the time, it was a little more obscure. You know, mountain bikers knew about it, but the whole road and tri world maybe wasn't that aware of it until until he did it. And then it got bought by Lifetime Sports, and then it got huge. And so the sheer number of people that do it these days is due in part to Lance's involvement and the attention that it brought to the event, I'm sure. Regardless of what some people think of him, and I mean, all you got to do is mention his name and you will get a fight in any bar that you walk into. Sure. <laughs> no matter what you feel about him, he brought a lot of attention to this dying town and the race that they were trying to start. Yeah. He watched the heartbreak of getting to the checkpoints, and if you finally were lucky enough to either get the lottery ticket or to qualify. If you did not make the checkpoint by a certain time, you basically get told your ride's done at this point. And that yep. uh, was, I mean, I, I saw like grown men crying on their bicycle when they, when they get to the checkpoint like five minutes too late. What was your experience with the checkpoint? Um, on my solo bike, I rode through all the checkpoints well clear of any of the cutoff times, so I never had to worry about it too much, although there is certainly some elation to the arrival. Just getting there and knowing that you've got a certain segment of the race behind you, and it's one step at a time to finish this thing. However, my wife and I did it on a tandem mountain bike that I built for us a couple of years later, and we were concerned about the checkpoints. I had started out the day cramping pretty early, which is a really bad thing to do. You know, at 30 miles in, I was already starting to suffer with some cramps. Probably lack of preparation and uh, being a flatlander from Arkansas didn't help at all, but that was a long, hard day. Uh, it was hard to get up to the turnaround at Columbine at the 50-mile point, you know, stopping up there and sitting in the sun and just feeling completely dejected and completely broken at that point. Happy to be up at the top, but knowing that, you know, the hard part wasn't done just because we were at the Columbine turnaround and we were going to descend downhill. There's a plenty of riding left to do. And in fact, when we were on our way back to the checkpoint at Pipeline coming back, I think there's a 10-hour cutoff. I could be lying about that, but I'm pretty sure it's 10 hours. I was looking at my Garmin, and my wife and I are trucking across the cobbled roadbed there before Powerline coming back. And, and I was looking at my Garmin, and I was seeing this nine minutes, 58, or nine hours, 58 minutes, you know, and starting to see that, watch the seconds tick by, and I'm just grabbing gears, and we're dying. I'm cramping, and she's back there suffering. She's, you know, she's stuck behind me. She doesn't know what's going on. I'm just like, we've got to meet this checkpoint, and we started just pedaling as absolutely as hard as we could, and I shifted it into the big chain ring, and, and we were in our top gear, literally sprinting for the checkpoint, 
And according to my Garmin that I had on the handlebar, we made it by six seconds. So we blasted through the checkpoint and then just collapsed in and got tangled up in an orange uh, fencing just past that. And uh, some dudes rushed over, you know, and they had Cokes and beers and asked us if we were okay and helped us get untangled from the netting. And, you know, I was just standing there trying to, like, beat some leg cramps out. And it was pretty epic. So we made the last checkpoint, and that's the last checkpoint before the finish. And we knew we weren't going to get our uh, get in there under 12 hours and get our our belt buckles uh so i was really disappointed for my wife um because she didn't have a belt buckle and um but we knew we could finish at that point and we just needed to ride in and we had one goal at that point we had some friends who had ridden a a tandem bike out there a few years prior and uh so we had their finish time to uh to race against and so we just we continued on and and um somewhere in there just after uh pipeline i lost a cleat on my uh, off my shoe and so I was just slipping and sliding around and we, we just did the best we could and we finished just over 13 hours and we we busted our friends time so it was a small victory for us and we were but we were so happy to finish um, we got there and if you know when you finish in 13 hours at Leadville the the, uh, the the race directors and all the spectators and the fans and all the other racers are gone Nobody else is standing around the finish line street, just a few stragglers, you know, and and um, they're already taking down the bleachers. They've taken down the banners, and and um, there's a blonde-haired lady, and I, uh, forgive me, I'm forgetting her name right now. Uh, she's the the sweet gal who gives away, uh, gives away all the, the little finisher medals that hang around your neck, you know, and then if you finish um, within uh, the cutoff, you get your belt buckle well we didn't get the belt buckle but she was waiting for us because she knew that we were coming in and we were just about the last people on the course because we we were basically the last people who made it through the checkpoint and uh, so it's a pretty emotional time you know you see uh you get there you realize you finished you're proud of your effort and she gives you that finisher medal but then you look around and the whole thing is sort of um sort of anticlimactic because they're tearing down all the the finish venue you know but uh, it's a sweet moment to finish, um, and, uh, uh, get that thing behind you, you know, and then get ready for a, for a good dinner because you earned it at that point. <laughs> what makes it even harder these days as a first timer is that you have to get into it. You either qualify to get into it or you get into it with a lottery. And if you're a first timer, and you just get into it through the lottery system, you're put in the last corral. And these days, there are you know, close to 3,000 people that do that event. And when you start in the last corral, it's really hard on your mind and your soul, <laughs> in my opinion, because you start behind a tremendous number of people. The tendency for the massive group to clog on the first climb, and even when you've, you turn off the pavement in town and hit the dirt, people are crashing and falling off off their bikes and when you have to stop and put your foot down at the beginning of you know what hopefully might be a eight and a half nine and a half ten and a half hour day the thought of stopping and waiting for this giant crowd in front of you to clear out is it's a soul-sucking moment and uh, you have to overcome that and you have to work your way through traffic so it's tough it's real tough it's hard on your mind it's hard on your emotions and and the, the altitude gets to you and it's sunny and a lot of the climbing there's not a lot of tree cover because you're on open roadbeds and stuff but it's awesome
The course itself starts and finishes in Leadville. It's a 100-mile course, and you climb 10 or 11,000 feet in the duration of the event. Most of the climbs at Leadville are really steep and hard just because of the altitude and because of the grade of the roads. It's not a truly technical course. It's not a course that only a mountain biker could do. And for that reason, a lot of people that predominantly ride road bikes or maybe even triathletes can get on that course and ride that course as long as they can handle the distance and the elevation gain. But it's a tough course. It's got famous features like the power line climb and the, the pipeline area. Twin Lake is a rest stop in the middle of it. It's a gorgeous place this high alpine natural lake there it's a great place for your support team to meet you and feed you at the 40 mile mark and then again at the 60 mile mark when you when you're on your return leg but the goal of every Leadville racer is to get to that turnaround point and that turnaround point is really high I think it's 12,000 something feet and uh, that turnaround point is called Columbine. Um, there's an old mine up there so you have this Columbine climb that's just brutal. You climb for miles and miles and then you finish with this gut punch of a climb to the very top of the mine from the old roadbed below. It's a great place to get there. It's gorgeous. You've got 360 degree sweeping views all around you. The unfortunate part is when you get there, you don't have time to soak it up and take it all in because you're so very looking forward to the descent. And it's a race after all, you know, so you're not lollygagging. You hit the checkpoint, you do a little 180 through the gate, grab a goo packet, and then you're off. And you descend for miles and miles back down to Twin Lakes and blow past your support crew there. And you just keep on churning, heading back to Leadville to try to finish that thing and get it behind you. So when I became interested in doing the Leadville 100, I signed up for the lottery system. And the lottery system is, is exactly that. In maybe January or something like that, the lottery opens and you can submit an entry fee for the event. You get in the lottery and then they send you a refund or back then they, they send you a refund check if you didn't get in. But if you did, they keep your money and then you're signed up and you're committed. So at that point, you start planning your summer trip. You know, if you don't live at altitude, if you live in a lower state, at the time I was living in Arkansas, there was no way I was going to road trip straight out there and then try to do the Leadville 100. That would just be foolish. So obviously, some acclimation needed to take place. So it's a great excuse for a summer vacation. If you can spend two weeks or 10 days in Colorado prior to the event, it's the best way to get ready. And at that point, you just lounge by the river, go for long mountain bike rides and have a good time and get yourself used to that thin air up there so that you can be ready on race day. I did it in 2011 on a single bike by myself, got in through the lottery system, but as a first time Leadville participant, when you get in through the lottery, they put you in the back corral. And so the start is staged in various corrals. I think in that year there were five corrals, maybe six corrals, the first corral is the first wave of racers that take off when they fire the start gun. And, you know, that's chock full of expert level riders and those folks who have ridden the event numerous times and pros, professional men and women. And, and those guys are all really fast. But as you move back through the corrals, typically people get placed into corrals based on finishes or finish time in previous events. Or if you're a first timer, you go into the back corral. 
it's an unfortunate place to be for some people, depending on your goals for the event. If you're, you know, if you want to just try to make that 12 hour cutoff and get your silver belt buckle, it's a safe place to start. You won't have to deal with a lot of people passing you. But if you're in relatively good shape and you want to try to break nine hours and get the bigger gold belt buckle, which is everybody's goal, let's be honest, then the last corral is a tough place to start. The reason it's a tough place to start is because these days the VIN is really huge. If you're in the last corral, there might be 2,500, there might be 3,000 people in front of you. And you roll out of town, they hit the, the start line, they fire the gun at the start line and the first corral takes off and you're just sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. And it's, uh, it's tough. Because you want to take off and go, you heard that you heard that gunfire. But you're wearing a chip. There's a chip on the bike until you roll over a timing mat when you start. So your official race time is chip time, not when they fired the gun. So that's okay. Anyway, you roll out of town and and things are good. And you're descending across the valley and you hit a dirt road. At that point, you're on dirt road most of the event. You do link up a few pieces of pavement over by the fish hatchery on the west side of the valley across from Leadville Town Center there. But it's it's a fast and furious way to start. You're you're zooming down the pavement, and then you slam this right corner onto the dirt, and you're about to start St. Kevin's Climb, and it's tough. As a solo rider, my first year, I was in that last corral. Uh, we hit the turn on the dirt, and people fell off their bikes, and that was hard to handle. It's just tough to deal with because I wanted to just ride. Anyway, the St. Kevin's Climb is a tough introduction. It's steep and uh, long, and the crowd in front of you is, is hard to deal with sometimes. But you deal with it. You know, you get over it, and the event is long enough. You know, like an adventure race, these long endurance races like that are are long enough that you can you can get down, you know, down in the dumps about the whole deal. Um, but you have plenty of time to deal with it and get over it so your emotions can run the gamut throughout the course of the day from i'm pissed off i'm frustrated i'm elated oh things are great that was awesome i'm catching people it can go highs and lows and highs and lows which is kind of cool it's pretty neat aspect of long events like that because you get to sort of figure out what you're made of and how to deal with yourself which is pretty cool it's a it's a good learning experience i think as a person the day I did it on my single bike, I, I had a relatively good day. Uh, other than starting in the last corral, I had to pass a whole bunch of people. The power line climb is a descent on the way out. It's a, it's a dangerous descent because it's an old logging road that's super ruddy. And the line, the best line on it, veers from the left side to the right side and back to the left side. It just, it just swaps and alternates across these super deep ruts. And the rock there, there's a bunch of decomposed granite, so it's just like kitty litter on on the top of hard pack clay soil, and it can be really treacherous. But if if you're a good rider, you can pass people there because a lot of people get off and walk and stuff. I passed a bunch of people going down power line. It felt like 100. The reality is who knows what. But anyway, you get down the power line, climb, and things start to sort of settle in. You kind of find your place in the race. You've sorted out the fast versus the slow, the those who can ride versus those who can't, and then you just get on with it. And it's just a matter of turning circles with your feet and trying to stay on top of your bike. You get to the 40-mile mark. You get to Twin Lakes. It's a, the first time cut. It's a place where if you're on target for a belt buckle, you won't have to anything at all to worry about a time cut. But it's the first place 
that you can get cut from the event if you don't make it to Twin Lakes, I think, in four hours. I could be wrong about that, but I didn't have any problem with uh, with the time cut at Twin Lakes and met my support crew there and got a little something to eat, a refill with some uh, liquids and stuff. And then from there, you just kind of churn on up towards Columbine. Columbine is a huge climb. It's a big mountain, and there's a mine on top called the Columbine Mine. I can't remember what they extracted from there, but it's long since closed. It is a place where you feel like you're on top of the world, and when you, you climb for what seems like hours and hours, you just keep going up and keep going up, and the top of the Columbine climb is the absolute worst. It's just this brutal pitch, just up through the wilderness, it seems. On a 10-hour pace, which was my, my pace for the day, you're yielding the line to all the faster guys and gals who are on their way back. They've reached the turnaround at the Columbine Mine and they're on their way back down. And so those guys, all respect to the fast guys, and you give them the line. So you're relegated to trying, you know, you're just trying to climb through all this like sage and scrabbly brush and boulders. And half the time, you know, you're just, there's a clog in front of you. So you just walk it. And uh, so it's heartbreaking for a while there but then you get to the top and there's some emotion there that's good because you're at the turnaround and you've at least you've bagged half of it you know and you're at the top of the world you get a view but there's no time to stop you just you grab a gel from the staff at the top and check in give them your number and then off you go and it's back down the hill and then it's just like descending and bombing like crazy for miles and miles back down to twin lakes and then you're off, you know, and there are a few more interesting spots. The pipeline is a place where you ride across an old pipeline right away. And it's flat, but it's tough because it's really rocky. It's cobbledy and kind of sandy and loose. And you're just churning through this. Uh, if it's a dry year, you're churning through this loose layer of sand and stuff. And so it's hard. Pipeline, if you can make it there in time, though, it's the last time cut. Once you get through there, you know you've made it. You know, you can, you just, you just got to keep pedaling. Do you remember seeing any specific riders having difficulty, like you're looking at them as you're going by and saying like, oh my God, look at that guy, or oh my God, look what's happening to that person? Oh my gosh, absolutely, absolutely. At that point, yeah, people are falling apart all through the course, you know, Um, but certainly on the way back. That's where preparation really starts to show itself. You know, if you if you're not really prepared to spend eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve hours on your bike, that last little bit, even though you think, okay, right on, I've, I've gotten to Columbine, I'm back, I've made it through Twin Lakes, I've made it through Pipeline. All I gotta do is finish up now. But the climb back up power line is a freaking beast, and not many people ride the whole way. I personally know a few people, some really strong guys and some friends of mine who have ridden it even without putting their foot down. But honestly, I can't even imagine it. I took about four pedal strokes going up Columbine and got off my bike and walked the whole damn thing. Because at that point, you're just shredded. You've cramped and then you stop cramping. Then you cramped and then you stop cramping. You've gotten hungry, then you then you ate. Then you bonked, then you ate again. It's a, a hard, long day. And uh, When I was on my solo bike in 2011... I definitely passed some people that were looking pretty, pretty haggard. In fact, I passed a guy who was virtually passed out on the trail. Uh, he was completely immobile, and there were some bystanders on power line who were attending to him. In fact, a lady was running down. She was like, I'm a nurse, I'm a nurse. And so I wasn't in any position to offer any help. I'm not a medical professional, and, I'm, and I was a tired mountain biker at the time. So I registered that, witnessed it for a second, and, and kept on going. And uh I thought to myself, you know, I'm I'm feeling pretty poorly, but I'm doing better than that guy. So 
So I got through all of that, you know, and then the, the last slap in the face is to climb up the finish line street, you know, climbing up towards the finish line is a long drag. You can see it forever. Uh, you round this corner and you look up and, and, uh, you're looking up towards town and you're just riding and it's deceptively hard. When you get to the top, uh, and when you cross that finish line, you know, people are cheering for you and like that year I, I did it in 10 hours and 41 minutes, I think, and, People are cheering like I just won the Tour de France, um, and that was really, it's really a weird feeling, you know. I, my wife came down and found me in the crowd, you know, on the sidewalk, and it was one of the hardest things I'd done on a bike at that point. I probably even cried a little bit, you know. I was so glad to get done and so glad to see her. You know, I sure didn't feel like I deserved, you know, any kind of applause for finishing in 10, you know, over 10 and a half hours, but everybody there is so stoked and they're just there are thousands and thousands of people that descend on this little bitty town every year for this event and everybody is just a hundred percent stoked on the effort that the riders put in you know whether you got cut at twin lakes but by golly you did 40 hard miles you just didn't make the cutoff or if you finish it you know if you finish it in six hours or 11 hours and 59 minutes so it's really exciting to finish I started making bicycles when I was in college, and then I had to take a break, and I recently, in 2018, returning to bicycle building. When you ride something that you've wanted for a long time, it's inspirational. It's, you, you enjoy your rides that much more, and it's kind of like when you build your own bike. It's just that much sweeter to, to ride that bike. And every time I get out now, I've started building bicycles again. When I get out on the bike now, it's on a bike that I built. It's a sweet feeling. And even more sweet when somebody says, oh, I like that bike. Who makes that? And then I get to, I, I'm not super boastful at all, but when I get to say, I made it, you know, and then they start asking more questions about it. And it's pretty cool. It feels, feels pretty good, especially if, you know, if somebody's complimentary and uh, it's nice. Galaxy Gear Works. Uh, I've always been a, like, space geek, man. I love Star Wars and Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica. I mean, when I grew up, I, my favorite cartoon was the Jetsons. I was always just fascinated with that kind of stuff. I've, I've always appreciated space exploration and what NASA does, and it's just fun stuff. Galaxy Gearworks is a company that I created in order to try to build unique bikes. When someone wants a bike that's different than everybody else's, someone wants to have an experience working with a custom builder and go through that process, uh, what it is they want in a bike or what it is they want to get out of a bike, what kind of experience do they want to have on the bike. I'm looking forward to the next person to decide that they want to share an experience with me as a builder. If people want to find out more, where should they go? If people want to find out more about me and about my company, Galaxy Gearworks, they can go to galaxygearworks.com. And it's got some galleries on there with some uh, recent bike builds. There's a little about section where they can learn about me and my experiences that sort of led me to building bicycles. But I also post a lot on Instagram. So it's Galaxy Gearworks on Instagram, and that feeds over into my Galaxy Gearworks Facebook page. But most of my shop pictures, in-process photos, and ride pictures, and new bikes in action, and just bike stuff in general, as I have those experiences, is on the Instagram feed. So that's sort of like the hot, fresh place to go to see what's going on with Galaxy Gearworks. Okay. 
Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, Tom. See you. Bye. Bye. Hey, I hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you are, please leave a positive review on iTunes or Apple Media. It really helps us out in the ratings. Even if you can't leave a full review, leaving a like or a five-star rating really helps out. So please and thank you for that. Also want to take time to thank people for following online. NKWSRN. Thanks a lot for following on Podbeam. If YXHZ. Wizzo. Thanks a lot. Kligd. And Silkman17, thanks a lot for following. You might remember Fred Thomas from episode 13. He used to race Ostro Daimler bikes back in the day. Some years went by, and he ended up actually buying the company name and reestablishing the brand. He runs another business as well called Frame and Wheel. Frame and Wheel provides eBay selling services to cyclists, bike shops, bike companies, bike racing teams, and cycling-related nonprofit organizations throughout New England. Basically, it'll sell your bike stuff for you on eBay. There's a lot of different options and plans, one of which even includes putting the money towards a new AD bike. So if you have some bikes, parts, or accessories that you're not using, and you need some time, space, or cash, check out Fred's website at theframeandwheel.com. That's theframeandwheel.com. And now back to the show. So you may or may not realize when you see a white bicycle, a bicycle that's all white, totally white, usually chained at the side of the road, that it's a memorial. They're called ghost bikes. I remember the first time that I saw one and actually knew what it was. It really kind of threw me because instead of just being this, why is that bike white? I really understood the meaning behind it and that there was an accident very close to where the bike is usually, you know, locked up and that a person lost their life there, a fellow cyclist. So when I started talking back and forth with Ellie online and found out she wanted to share her story about this, I didn't know how we were going to start talking about it. So we just started talking about life in general at first and kind of got to know, you know, our cats and stuff like that. Uh, hello, my name is Ellie. I am a tattoo artist that, and I live in Kentucky, Louisville. I've been here for only just a couple of years now here in Louisville. I did live in Lexington for 16 years and I've been tattooing for minimum about 15 years now. I've had a few starts and stops in my career, but I've been tattooing full time since I've been here in Louisville. The two cats that I have, I have uh, my older cat, Momo, and she's a large, surly calico. And my other cat is Baloney. He's kind of like my poster child, I guess. Awesome. I, I just hunker down on the couch and hope he doesn't run over me because he's, he's a bit much. We talked about our cats. We talked about different breeds. We talked about life in general. And then we gradually got to the topic at hand. I think I was wondering how to start it. So we just did. 
So let's jump into it. We'll just start general, if that's okay. Okay. What does it mean when you see a white bicycle chained up on the side of the road and it's all painted white? Okay. So when I see a bicycle that's completely white and on the side of a road or chained up on a sign or something like that, for me personally, I immediately know that something tragic happened there. I don't think that if I had been in the situation that I had personally gone through and the people I had known because of even before my story happened, I never would have really given them much of a second thought. You see bicycles everywhere, you know, whether they're actually owned or discarded or stolen or what have you. You know, I I constantly see bicycles on a daily basis, especially living in an urban environment. But there is something very striking about seeing a bike that is all white, dramatically all white, the tires, the frame, the seat. And generally, you know, you're going to see other things that are affixed to it as well that make it very obviously a memorial of some sort. So where should we go next? Um, geez, yeah, I mean, I guess um, a little history would give it some context as well. Uh, Well, I guess to start with, his name was Jason. He was 41 at the time of his passing, and he was a bicycle mechanic. Even before we were ever a couple, bicycles had been a very integral part of his life since childhood. You know, a typical child of the 70s, you know, with old like 35 millimeter cameras and stuff like that, you know, we all have these old grainy blurry photos of ourselves, you know, on our first bicycles and huffies or what have you, you know, or banana seats and crazy flags and all that kind of stuff on our childhood bikes. And he grew up in a small town outside of Louisville, uh, Elizabethtown. Growing up in like a really small little country-type community, he had the opportunity to work at a local bike shop when he was a child. And from there, his interest in bicycles really bloomed and blossomed. He ended up being very involved with BMX bikes initially, and I think like most little boys start that way. Once he graduated from high school, he went on to UK, University of Kentucky in Lexington. And from there, he really kicked, his cycling interest really took a more serious, um, took a bigger notch up. He started working at a bike shop in Lexington. And from there, you know, he started doing road cycling. He became more serious about mountain biking to the point where he eventually started riding for Cannondale. For a couple of years and I think that that's the epitome of any fan of any sport is to eventually be a sponsored athlete for a company that you know that you really like and you know utilize their products and whatnot so you know I'm sure he was on top of the world to have his own personalized Cannondale with his name printed on it and he ranked pretty well when he raced for him and um, once he graduated from the University of Kentucky, he continued to work with bicycles. He ended up working at Dick's Sporting Goods for a number of years, naturally working in the bike department where he was a bike mechanic. And he worked his way up 
in retail, but he knew he was spinning his wheels, and he ended up going to law school during that time. And he did graduate from law school. He graduated from the University of Louisville. He never did go on to take the bar. He actually decided that once he graduated law school that he just wanted to stick with bikes. He found his passion. Turns out that he was offered a position to manage and be the mechanic at a brand new local bike shop in Lexington that opened up. He was offered more money and he saw himself, you know, being able to cater to a more specialized niche versus working in a large sporting retail store. And um, things were going pretty good, you know. And it was at that point after he graduated that we had been engaged. We got engaged. We had been together for about nine years, I would say. And we were finalizing our plans for getting married. We already had our rings made, and I had already bought the dress. But um, everything changed on October 24th in, in 2012. I know that it was a day that I was off, and he normally would ride his bike to work. He commuted to work. It was about a four-mile commute. I think it, on, on an average, it would take him about 20 minutes. And on that day, I was off, and I was actually in the process of painting a friend's nursery for them. They were expecting their first child. And I was going on my off days to go paint this nursery, and that day I was falling behind. I should have already been at my friend's, but that day I was I was running behind, and then I decided, you know what, I'm just going to stay home because he's going to be home in about an hour and a half. So I'll just hang out until he gets home, and then I'll go and do this painting. It was about 6.15, and I'm thinking, you know, he should be home by now. And about 6.30, I really started getting concerned. But I'm thinking, you know, maybe he just um, got caught up after work and decided to talk to his coworkers or his boss. And then I realized that there was my phone... I was charging it in the restroom, and I noticed that there was a message waiting for me. And it was uh, the hospital telling me to call. It was urgent. And I called, and they said that, you know, there had been an accident and that I needed to come right away. And I panicked and ran out the door, and the U.K. hospital was just a few blocks away, but I'd never been to that hospital before. And uh, along the way, I I remembered seeing um, a bunch of police lights, and there was caution tape on this side street. I remember thinking, you know, gosh, there must have been a horrible accident there. But my mind is still very much focused on getting to the, the hospital. I just know that that he's been hurt. I, I got lost on, on the hospital ground. Somehow I got turned around on all the little driveways and wasn't following signs correctly. And I just parked the car and his mother calls me. I knew that she had to have known what had happened. That was the only reason why she was contacting me. I mean, I had a, a good rapport with his mother, but she never called my phone. As soon as she called me, I was prepared to explained to her what was going on and that I had just arrived and and then she told me that he was already gone. 
And I just couldn't understand, like, how I just know that it was 6 o'clock he was supposed to be off work. And I just wanted him to come home. I go inside, and you don't expect to see somebody that was healthy and alive and vibrant to just not be anymore. They said that, um, you know, there was nothing they could do. It was just mass trauma. Apparently, he was hit by an SUV. He had biked out in in between stop traffic. At a, it's almost kind of like a little median area by a busy road. And it's an area that together me and him have crossed numerous I would dare say hundreds of times over the years. But there is no bike lane there. There is no crosswalk there. It is a intersection for cars to pull out at. It was rush hour and there was stop traffic in one lane. And he pulled out in between the park traffic and a car coming in the left-hand lane just couldn't stop in time. And people there did try to help him and the driver did stop and from my understanding um and everything was done but he was never conscious again it was a bad couple of years in lexington he was the third cyclist to die in about a year and a half span two other cyclists were killed under very similar circumstances i would say um, not necessarily the accident themselves, but all three cyclists were very similar. They were all seasoned cyclists. They commuted regularly on their bicycles, and they also enjoyed cycling, you know, on their off time as well, road cycling or what have you. They were all men over 30s, in their 30s, and they were all hit by vehicles as they were on their way home. And I don't know if that play some sort of factor if it's just a very strange coincidence but you know it just made I feel his death even more upsetting because there was a frequency to these things happening especially in Lexington I would say approximately a, a week after his funeral uh, is when I I had learned about ghost bikes before then only because he was being so involved in the cycling community and being interested in community. He was constantly looking at stuff online, various websites and stuff like that, and uh, things like I'm sure you, you've heard of it, like the Bikes Knob, NYC, and several other types of uh, cycling groups, websites. And, of course, ghost bikes, if you're within the cycling community, you're going to come across them and you're going to find out what they're about. And so, yeah, I, I I find it somewhat, you know, bittersweet that only knowing of them in such a short time, I would find myself having to place one. And it's um, it's something that helps to give me closure. I know that some people view it as somewhat morbid because it does symbolize uh, a death. And usually a cyclist dying due to a motorist 
it's not a, a clean death. And it just is so traumatic for all parties involved. I don't hold any ill will to the, towards the motorist. I know nothing about the motorist. I don't need to know exactly who it is, their age or their gender or what they do. As long as I know that it wasn't under the circumstances of them being, you know, under the influence or they were negligent because they were on their phone or any of those other factors that would have been where they were liable for for causing his death. But the evidence shows, the police reports and, and the witnesses and et cetera, show that it was it was an accident and it's not by the motorist's fault. But regardless of who was at fault, the fact that the a cyclist died, I felt needed to be a statement needed to be made. And I feel that it's like, you know, a, a ghost bike definitely attracts attention. When they see a ghost bike, you know, whether or not they're part of the cycling community, they're going to start asking questions. And I know that it starts to kind of gain its own momentum within a community when people start realizing that it's almost kind of a landmark. Like, hey, you know, it's have you seen that, that white bike over on Midland or you know, when people say, we, you know, we can just go and meet over by the park where where that uh, white bike is. And eventually, if they get curious enough and they try to find out why the white bike is there, uh, I hope that that is at least a form of education. I think more people need to be made aware of the fact that it's dangerous for cyclists out there. Motorists need more education, and they need to understand that pedestrians, cyclists, Anybody that is not in a car is very vulnerable. And if it, if it takes a white bike, you know, just piquing their curiosity, that's just the beginning of them learning about it. His ghost bike looks like well, actually, and I feel that after having been with him for so long and having met so many other similar, I, I mean, it's birds of a feather. Of course, he had plenty of friends that were also cyclists. And I noticed like this very bizarre habit that they would just collect bikes and bikes and bikes until the point, like at one point, I think we had nine bikes in one room. You know, and I can recall just nagging him on occasion and saying, you know, you can only ever ride one at any given time. Like, we don't need this many bikes. But he always had the whole, like, well, this is my mountain bike. This is my commuter bike. This is my road bike. You know, so he always had a, and this was a project bike, and this was a leftover bike, and, hey, this is a bike I want to restore, and this is one I'll salvage parts off of. And after he passed, I mean... I just kind of had my choice of <laughs> bikes that I could use for the project. I mean, I certainly wasn't going to use any of the nicer bikes that he had or the higher-end bikes, of course, but he did just so happen to have a fixer-upper mountain bike that he was, I don't know what he was going to do with it, but <laughs> either way, it ended up being his ghost bike because of all the biking that he enjoyed, mountain biking was his passion. So I I really wanted it to be a mountain bike to represent him as his ghost bike. 
Does it have a message written on it? Yes, um, actually it has a bunch of messages. I painted it all, then I wrote his name, uh, typical like headstone type iconography, uh, you know, his name, his birth date, and his passing, and um, I included a message from his brother, and I also included small symbols that had to do with events that we shared with friends, like fond memories. I wanted his friends to have a little part of the bike as well. So there's just little symbols affixed here and there. And I also wrote a personal message for him, myself in Korean. And every significant holidays, I guess you could say, um, major holidays, his birthday was is actually New Year's Day. And that always makes it a little bit harder for me because it's not, you know, not only do I have to celebrate another new year without him here, but I, I really wish that I could wish him a happy birthday. He's buried in E-Town, in Elizabethtown, back in, back in his hometown, which is about 40 minutes from me. So being in Louisville, I am actually closer to his grave, but his ghost bike is back in Lexington where the accident occurred, which is a, a little over an hour east of here. Currently, his bike isn't even up. They were doing massive road construction around the park that his bike is at. And thankfully, some people there warned me that they were carrying road up and, you know, like actually changing like power lines and everything through there. So I managed to go and get the bike before everything was torn up. Um, and it's safely being stored at a, somebody's garage right now until the weather gets better and until the construction is done it's still i don't assume that it'll be until probably after february before i can get it back up do people leave flowers and such at it um they have they're in the beginning definitely i mean it's been six years now I've seen a marked decrease in it, but I mean, I myself go with enough frequency and I, I always go to at least check and maintain that it's not been vandalized or it's not been stolen or, you know, or, or somebody would disrespect it in any way. Generally, though, it seems as though everybody has been very respectful to it. It's right across the street from the local paper, so the large uh, printing press is right there. and. The workers there actually keep an eye on it. They've actually yelled at me a couple of times, thinking that I was actually messing with it. <laughs> Until I explained to them that it's, you know, that I'm the owner and that it's my bike. So that's that's really nice to know that, you know, they they understand what it's about. And and they had actually done news coverage of it because of the fact that they were right there when the accident occurred. They actually wrote a very nice story about about Jason. His death, I mean, it being Lexington, you know, it's a big city for Kentucky, but it's not that big of a city comparatively to like where I'm from in Baltimore and stuff. But his death was easily in the news for a solid two weeks because of, you know, how it happened. And the subsequent, we had a memorial ride for him as well. Thankfully, his friends that he mountain biked with frequently on almost on a weekly basis because he was actually supposed to go mountain biking that evening. They uh, got a group ride together and, and we did a quick loop around one of his favorite trails. But 
I would say at this point, the grieving has not lingered on, you know, as naturally for, for everybody else as much as I, it, it still continues to for, for me and his family and his parents. You know, when people see these ghost type memorials, regardless of what their own personal attitude is about cycling, because the community is very divided about cyclists and non-cyclists. There is a large contingency of motorists out there that don't appreciate or want to share the road with cyclists. Or, you know, and I'll go so far as to say that they just aren't aware of how dangerous it is to be a cyclist. And when they see a ghost bike, I hope that, you know, they can actually understand that how dangerous it is for people and how vulnerable they are. And it goes beyond just the cyclist. I mean, you know, I'm living proof that, you know, a cyclist, when they die, it impacts, the, the ripple effect goes on. You know, I mean, my, my life was completely torn upside down by losing him so unexpectedly and the way he did the way he had had to die i think that you know i don't know if it's fitting that he he died on a bike being that he lived his life on a bike you know i mean it but when when you see a ghost bike I mean, you've got to remember that you know you're you're not the only one on the road that you're not just this all-powerful you know person that just you have people's lives in your hands and it it doesn't take much at all people think that you know, if you're not driving too fast, that it can't be that bad. But, I mean, the most serious injuries occur at, at what is perceived at low impact, you know, at low speed. I don't know. I just wish I really I really hope that, you know, that anybody would take a moment and really stop and think like, wow, you know, like, you know, somebody actually lost their life right there because of a, a negative interaction between a, a car and a bicycle. So I just really want to thank you for sharing the story and uh, contacting me and, and, and talking about your experience and, and sharing, you know, uh, I appreciate it. Ali doesn't have anything to promote or anything like that. She just wanted a chance to share her story. We started talking through Instagram where her handle is elliebeans73. You can see her artwork there, her cool cats, and you can also see Jason's memorial bike. So I recently talked to Eric Russell from the Rolling Steel podcast. As we get into warmer weather, it's easy to take it for granted. So he's going to talk a little bit about winter cycling to remind you just how bad it can be in winter. And then just like hanging the number 13 upside down when you get it for a race number, he has one day that he won't go cycling on. And he'll share that story with us as well. One thing that I've really been focused on myself 
in the last couple of years is really becoming a year-round writer. That's one of the main reasons why I started my podcast was to like really incentivize myself to toughen up and make this the year that I really start to do the things on my bike that I've thought for years about doing and just haven't done. My name is Eric Russell and I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Starting up this the Rolling Steel podcast was my way to really incentivize myself. I'm a bike commuter and the last two years particularly I've really been able to commute year round even in like the coldest months of Pittsburgh. So I'm I'm pretty happy about that. So my daily commute into work is honestly only about five miles each way. Pittsburgh's not really the most easily like bike friendly city. I mean, we're known really as kind of like the city of hills and bridges and really they're, they're mountains. I mean, we have a very, very challenging terrain here. Kind of sound like an old man saying it, but like it's like uphill both ways, but it really is. My ride in is an easy ride but I get a lot, a lot of strong headwinds. We have up and down weather. And my ride back, I have to climb a very, very steep climb. And it's prob probably about a mile and a half to two miles of pretty solid climbing. So it's not for the, the faint of heart all the time. I mean, rolling steel has kind of been a discussion about how to ride year-round, bike commute year-round, and hopefully not break the budget. Because if you're seriously thinking about doing that, it can be a hefty investment, not so much, in my opinion, on the bike, but more on the gear that you need to get yourself through the year. And again, I'm coming at it from a Pittsburgh, northeastern city perspective that does get some very cold weather and a lot of snow and rain. Mainly my thing about rolling steel has been to introduce folks to the idea about finding the right bike and trying to find your bike used if possible. And I talk folks through how to find the right bike used, what particularly to look for. I'm trying to introduce people to the type of gear that you need in order to have the wherewithal to endure the colder months. Yeah, so what conditions wouldn't I commute in the winter in Pittsburgh? So one of the nice things about Pittsburgh is that at least in the the years that I've gotten into bike commuting year round, Pittsburgh doesn't have like these all out snowstorms on a frequent basis. So if we do have, you know, like a heavy drop of snow, it's a very unique thing and it's not going to obstruct from your riding like on a regular basis. So if you can manage like, you know, one to four inches of snow, then you can pretty much ride most days through the winter. So snow is not usually an obstruction. The thing that usually gets in my way in recent years has been less of an issue is the cold. We sometimes get these things like we had last week, which was the polar vortex. Everybody's heard of that because it hit like 20 states. Through that even, I only missed two days, which was the days where it got down below zero with the wind chill. And it was just too cold and there was snow and moisture. And so there were freezing conditions. And that was actually what deterred me the most was the fear of being on the road with people who might not be able to navigate snow and ice and just worrying about motorists. So most of my commute, it's a five mile ride to and from work each, each way. 
I only spend about a mile of my five miles with traffic. But even in that one mile, if there's ice or snow and ice, whatever, that it's slippery, I'm probably going to just bail on that day and just take the hit. And, you know, most of the time, though, you don't see those conditions. That maybe only happens a handful of times in the year. So I think back through this last year, 2018, I think weather in Pittsburgh only obstructed me or kept me from riding to work by commuting maybe two or three times. But again, this isn't Minnesota. I mean, we don't have negative 20 degrees weather all the time, and we don't have six inches to a foot or more of snow on a regular basis. It's Pittsburgh. So that's one that, one thing that's nice about it. So while there is very few days due to weather that you wouldn't ride on, there is one day that you won't ride on due to other reasons. Yeah. Uh, yes. This is funny because I really think that this is the first year that I'm really firmly con considering this, but just kind of looking back retrospect on my life, that July 4th has oddly been a day of really bad outcomes for me. So just oddly, uh, whenever I was a kid, I grew up mountain biking. I lived in rural Pennsylvania and I would get on my bike and head out from my house, and it was old dirt roads, uh, farm country, coal country. And so I would go out by myself and ride down these big dirt hills. And I would go out to these old abandoned coal mines, and my dad was actually a coal miner. So there were a lot of abandoned old coal mines. And so I would go out riding my bike down these big dirt mounds at these old abandoned mines. It was July 4th, I went out by myself and I was riding down these mount, these big dirt hills. And at the bottom of the one hill was, apparently it was like a, a pit of mud that I didn't really see. It wasn't like a big pit, but just like a, maybe like a pothole size pit of mud. And so my front wheel got stuck in it as I came down this hill and I launched over my bars and I broke my collarbone. And so that year I missed wrestling camp, which was a really big hit to me because I really wanted to go to wrestling camp and uh, I really enjoyed wrestling whenever I was in high school. And then the following year, I apparently didn't learn from my mistake. And oddly enough, I went out again on July 4th and in not much different of a scenario, I was out with a group of friends that year and we were doing some mountain biking and we were going down this very haphazardly mode there were gas lines running across uh, this open area in the woods, like underground gas lines. And so each time you approached a gas line, you had to bunny hop it or jump it. And if you didn't hit it the right way, you were going to have an accident. Well, the grass was high. I didn't see the one coming and I ended up hitting it full speed. The back end of my bike kicked up over and I went over the bars again and broke my collarbone again. So, so yeah, two July 4ths in a row. Didn't learn from my mistake, and, you know, I was a teenager. So years down the road, though, so this was two years ago, I went out to my parents' house July 3rd. My dad was acting a little funny. He had a fever of 104, and he ended up on July 4th having a seizure. And... Uh, it really freaked us out. He had to go to the emergency room. 
misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis, it ended up being Lyme's disease. And he ended up in the ICU in Pittsburgh for three weeks and he nearly died. And so that was a really bad July 4th for me. And then the following year after that, so this was last year on July 4th, um, my dad finally was recovering from Lyme's disease. And the most prolonged effect was some severe impacts on his neurological states, coordination, body movements, things like that. And so he was finally getting back into riding his own bike and doing things with my mom, enjoying life again. The Lyme's disease really messed with his brain. So life-changing in so many ways. So he was finally getting back on his bike and enjoying himself again. And on July 4th of last year, it was so crazy. He went out on his bike with my mom and it was a really rainy day and they, they had done like 20 some miles on, on their bikes. So my dad, feeling invincible and finally like he had his legs back and like was healthy again, he decided to do like a rolling stop, like rolling dismount off of his bike. And so because of the neurological impacts from Lyme's disease, he wasn't coordinated enough to do it. And so his leg got kind of hung up on the bike and he had a bike accident and he ended up breaking, I think it was two or three ribs. They thought he ruptured a spleen. And so he ended up spending nearly a week in the hospital after that incident. So it was just like a really like tumultuous two years in a row. And it was odd because it was so similar to the tragedies that I had whenever I was a kid on July 4th. It was just back to back July 4th. Like, hey, we're going to mess with you and take away your independence and like the things that you love and bring you joy. <laughs> and so I don't know. I, I feel like this year, July 4th, I think I, I can't do it. So I think I'm just, if I had any day I was going to recommend to somebody to not ride on, it would be July 4th. And I'm not a superstitious person, but it's just been a bad, a bad day. So don't ride your bike on July 4th. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I'm so um, sorry, dude. <laughs> I, I can kind of comfort myself sometimes. Like if I'm like five minutes late or I'm running late or whatever, then I think that I just narrowly escaped something. Mm -hmm. You know, and that it happened for a reason. So maybe, maybe there's some, all this awareness about July 4th doesn't mean the day is necessarily cursed for you, but you know, maybe it's just something that's like, maybe it wants you to take a couple July 4th off just to be safe for some other reason. Yeah. And maybe that, maybe it'll all work out, but, uh, I hope you can find other things to do on that day, such as, uh, burn sage over your bicycle or <laughs> but yeah after all i just i just can't imagine ever not riding my bike you got to keep doing the things that bring you joy and happiness through all the bad things that have happened in my life like whatever it is whatever personal struggle i'm going through getting on my bike has always been how i've dealt with that thank you so much for coming on the show yeah definitely thanks for having me if people want to find out more about your podcast or follow you on social media, what would they look for? Yeah, so I'm up on Instagram at Rolling Steel PGH for Pittsburgh. So Rolling Steel PGH on Instagram. The podcast is up on all the different podcasting platforms like iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, really anywhere you can think of. Cool. Thank you very much. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. 
Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle Podcast. Thanks a lot to Ryan, Ellie, and Eric for sharing your stories on the show. As always, want to thank Keller Glass and the band Mobjack for our opening and closing theme music. You should check them out at mobjackmusic.com. All of our other music is from various royalty-free musicians. Thank you collectively to those artists as well. The rest of the Bike Karma podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All rights, including copyright, trademark, and all those other rights are asserted and reserved. If you have suggestions or a story that you might want to share on the show, you can email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. Likewise, if you're a sponsor who thinks that your product would be a good fit for the show, advertising on the show is flexible and very reasonable. Once again, reach me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. Thank you to everybody with a story waiting in the queue or those people waiting for interviews. I really appreciate your patience. I try and put a little love into each episode and they do take a lot of time. So I appreciate your patience and they'll be worth it. Do you know anybody in Greenland? If you do, just come to download the episode, or at least one. I'd really appreciate it. I'll send you a bunch of stickers. And hey, even if you don't, I can send you some stickers. Just email me your address. Even if you ran out, maybe I'll send you more. Especially if you're putting them in cool places. Guess who I just woke up to tell you about the ABC Quick Check? Hi, my name's Taryn. It's really, really... A stands for air. B stands for break. C stands for chain. Uh, quick is quick releases. And quickly check your bike before you go rolling down a hill. Well, thanks a lot, Taryn. I guess you could go back to bed. And until next time, keep it wheel. There's times like this.